0: Well, good morning. Let's get right to business. I don't have a lot of time, I don't want to keep you late. Open up your Bibles, if you will, the First Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're getting there, by way of introduction, I want to put this in your mind. The true measure of a man is not found so much in what he does and what that man has accomplished, but rather the true measure of a man is found... And how much he is willing to suffer loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. History has given us many examples of such men. Men dedicated to Christ Jesus. One comes to mind is that of Jonathan Edwards. America's greatest pastor and theologian. Graduated from college at the age of 13, got his master's degree at age 16, and almost finished his doctorate at age 19. You think of the hundreds of thousands of sermons that are preached every year, or I should say every Sunday in America, and yet only rightfully one sermon could be considered the greatest, most well-known sermon in the whole history of America, and that's Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As a pastor, he was instrumentally used by God to start a revival, the Great Awakening that swept through America in the 1700s. And much could be said about the man's accomplishments, but going back to the original statement, what did he suffer he was willing to suffer humiliation in his own community, hatred by his own um, congregation. He was took a stand and was removed from his pulpit, by the members of his own church, even members of his own family. Why? Well, he took over the pulpit from his grandfather. And his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, introduced what is known as the halfway covenant. Not get into all the particulars, this uh, halfway covenant allowed non-converted, non-believing people to become members of the church, to be baptized, to take communion, to do all those sorts of things. And it was really the issue of communion that Edwards, after studying the scripture... Believed that what his grandfather instituted was wrong. He set out to, to reverse the halfway covenant, and his grandfather was so beloved by the church that he was removed. And so here you have America's greatest pastor removed from his own pulpit by his own people, and for I think about the next seven years he spent being a missionary to the Indians, the Native Americans, and speaking on them at the most very basic level. He had probably one of the greatest minds America has ever known. I could think of John Calvin. This man suffered greatly for Christ. He protected communion. He protected the Lord's Supper against some armed men who were livingly open, rebellious, and sinful, and scandalous lives. They came into his church with swords, ready to storm the table of the Lord. Calvin, getting wind of this, goes near the elements, places his arms around them, and cries out, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and so dishonor the table of the Lord my God. I think also of the English Protestants and their loss under the reign of Mary Tudor, nicknamed Bloody Mary. Many of these men, over 500 of them, were burned at the stake in England. And there was many reasons for their executions But the main issue that usually was what resulted in their death is the issue of transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic doctrine that the elements of communion literally become at the mass the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. These men were willing to lay down their lives. Many of them died. If they would just embrace transubstantiation, they would go free. But they're willing to pay for their life because they considered, no, I will not dishonor the Lord. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. He does not need to be re-sacrificed every time the Mass is given. Now the question I pose is why. Why over the practice of communion was so many people willing to sacrifice so much? And I also ask you to examine your hearts. What are you willing to sacrifice over what sometimes we take so lightly? In answering this, I think more than from anywhere else, these men were following the example set forward by the Apostle Paul and found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The title of this this message this morning is Contending for Communion. And I hope that we would contend for the purity of it in other people's lives, but most importantly, contend for the purity of coming together around the Lord's table, most especially in our own lives. Let's read the text. 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, starting in verse 17. <clears throat> the word of the Lord reads But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Four. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper as that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Father... Open our eyes to the reality of what communion is. How we should take it and where our hearts are before you this morning. May we do deep time with our own souls. Considering if we are walking in a manner worthy of the upward calling of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us hearts ready to receive your word. Minds ready to understand it and apply it. And just, uh, Lord, above all, may Christ be exalted. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I've divided the text as follows. In verses 17 through 22, we see, first of all, the first heading, a communion problem. A communion problem, verses 17 through 22 second division is a communion prescription, verses 23 through 34. So a communion problem and a communion prescription. The communion problem, Paul had desperately to contend with the believers at Corinth because of the God dishonoring way that they were taking communion. Why did Paul contend though? We have to ask ourselves that question. Couldn't he just let it go? Is it really a big deal? Couldn't he just chalk it up to the differences in how people worship God? I think there's some reasons why he couldn't let it go, why it was such a big deal. First of all, he couldn't just let it go. He had to address it. He had to contend for the the sanctity of communion because of his Jewish heritage. And God's command to to keep the unity of the body of Christ, the church. Communion has in its richness, it has from its glory, it all stems from the Jewish feast of Passover. In fact, according to Matthew 26, if you read verses 17 through 29, when Jesus originally instituted communion or the Lord's Supper, he did it during a Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal was the central figure, the central religious festival to the Jewish people. It was a reminder that Jesus or it was a reminder that God is the redeemer. While they were slaves in Egypt, God rescued them. God freed them from their bondage of slavery in Egypt and brought them out free and brought them to their own land. The whole meal is centered around God being a savior. And communion comes right out of that. Now Paul is contending because the Corinthian believers were not acting in love and in unity. Both to the Jewish people who would have saw this whole thing as scandalous. But even to their poor Gentile believers in the church. You read the text. Those who were poor, who were at the back of the line, got nothing to eat, nothing to drink. They went home hungry. It was just a gluttony fest. The ununified Corinth church. Some major reason why Paul says, "Look at this is a huge issue." Their lack of unity is such a big, major theme pouring through the book of 1 Corinthians that basically Paul has to readdress the issue in chapters 12, 13, and 14 in the same book. You're not unified and you're using your spiritual gifts in such an inappropriate way that it's not bringing unity but division in the body. So he goes over the mandate of spiritual gifts. It's unity of the body of Christ. Paul couldn't let that go. It was worth bringing up. And that's important, but even more important than that is that communion is a proclamation of the gospel. The gospel was on the line. The gospel was at stake. The bread represents the life of Jesus. His body His perfect life without sin, without any blemish, in which he perfectly, 100% kept every one of God the Father's laws. Something that we cannot do on our own. The wine represented Jesus' death as a substitute sacrifice for sins to appease the Father's wrath and to atone or cover over our sins of the believer. And the fact that believers are spiritually getting together and having communion with Jesus, a spiritual presence of Jesus, points to the fact that Jesus is alive, that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. So, communion is all about the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And as such, the Corinthians were defiling their gospel presentation and their gospel witness to one another and to the community in the improper and sinful way that they were celebrating communion. So you can see this is just something Paul couldn't let go. It was poisonous to their souls. And what father and mother would give their own children poison to drink? Or let their children play with something like that. And say it's not a big deal. The purity of Christ and his gospel. The sanctification of the church was at stake. Paul couldn't keep silent. Couldn't. Well, what was the problem? Let's look at the text again. In the following instructions, I do not command you. I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses they eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say then to you? Shall I commend you? No, I will not. The problem is you look in here on the surface, and we're going to treat this kind of like an onion. We're going to go through it a layer at a time. On the surface, it, it seems to be a lack of humility and love for others in the body of Christ. But as we peel the onion apart, we'll see. The problem, the sin issue goes much deeper than just a lack of humility and a lack of love. Notice some of the phrases that was read. When you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, before the actual observance of communion, we have to understand what's going on here. Churches at the time had what is described in the Bible, especially in the book of Jude, as a love feast. Think of it as a church potluck. Everybody brought dishes that were to be enjoyed together as a body. It was to celebrate their union and and being brought together, different people, but united under the banner of Jesus Christ. this is perfectly in line with what the early churches did. In the book of Acts, as we've studied already. It's been a while ago, but we've studied it. Where it said in Acts, day by day, they broke bread in one another's houses. And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46. They were coming together and this meal was to be a, common celebration of their unity in Christ. They're members of a spiritual family. An exaltation uh, of really Christ. And it was supposed to, in a sense, prefigure what is spoken about in the book of Revelation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The ultimate feast that believers will share at the table of Christ in heaven. These love feasts we the join and knit believers hearts together. In thanksgiving to the Lord. Yet what do we see in the text? Some were gluttonous. They stuffed their faces so much that others at the feast went away hungry. Without food. How happy would you be about that? Especially if you're poor, you're at the back of the line, you bring something to the feast and you walk away with nothing. Some were getting drunk so that there was not enough wine for everyone to enjoy. And he says that there were divisions in in the the practice, the practice of communion between the well-to-do and the it really portrays their divisions in this church financially. Those who were middle class and upper class were in their own group. And the less fortunate, the poor, were left to themselves. They always got the back of the line. And it's thus they were not able to join in and celebrate eat and drink and be merry and give glory to the god there's a lack of love and humi- a lack of humility here that's the surface issue there's a lack of love for Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 22 verse 39 that we the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as yourself and it's well seen here that this is a violation of that command it is not an option. God is giving the second greatest law to love our neighbors, anybody around us, the same way we love ourselves. Well, it's seen in the text that everybody else wanted to eat. They stuffed their faces. They got drunk. They loved themselves that much where they would go to overabundance. and Yet it's seen that they weren't loving other people in the congregation in the same way their lack of love prevented other people from enjoying the meal it's also a lack of humility Paul's own definition of humility is seen in Philippians chapter 2 Where he says, do nothing from rivalry or vain conceit. But in humility, count other people as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest. But also to the interest of others. Ultimately, he goes on as the ultimate fulfillment of the humble man is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who being in the very nature God humbled himself. Taking up the form of a slave. And becoming humbled, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obviously the rich here had no regard for the interests of the poor. They weren't humble, they saw themselves as better, as more entitled to the food. I hope you can see the seriousness of the problem It's not so much the actions which are bad enough. It's the heart. The lack of love. The lack of humility. It's so serious that God himself says that he opposes the proud. But he'll give grace to the humble. Yet it goes deeper than that. That's only the surface issue. What's the real issue? The core issue is idolatry. Any sin is idolatry. Any sin is idolatry. It has its roots embedded deep in idolatry. Because in any sin, the sinner is saying in their heart, I know better than God. God commands this, but I know better, so I'm going to do that. I know it's better for... For my life and God. I should be ruling my life, not God. Any sin, that's what the sinner is saying in their heart. Now you can see why sin is so serious and Christ had to come and die to save sinners. Sin is a cosmic rebellion against a good God. In reality, all sin is ultimately self-idolatry. The worship of self. Worshipping the creation above the creator. Notice the comment. It says, Paul says, the people were despising the church of God. This really does point to the real heart issue of idolatry. Despising God's people is one of the the, the clearest identifiers of idolatry. How do we treat other Christians? How we treat other believers points out to how we are treating Jesus Christ. That could either be in the positive or the negative. We treat other believers poorly. It points to that we despise and treat Christ poorly. We treat other believers as Better than ourselves. As members of our family. It proves that Christ is the head of our family. Our father. Some examples of this. Think about Jesus on the Olivet Discourse. and In Matthew chapter 25. He goes on. And, and, and he's given this example. i to turn there in the. My Bible, so I don't mess it up. He gives both the positive and the negative. He says, the king says, in Matthew 25, verse 34, "'Come, you who are blessed by my Father, "'inherit the kingdom prepared for you "'from the foundation of the world. "'For I was hungry, and you gave me food.'" I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer them and say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink and see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, if you did it to the least of one of these, least of believers, my brothers, you did it to me. He goes on to say in the negative example, after saying to the evil people, you, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. To, he says, the people answer, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger and sick or in prison and not minister to you? We never saw you. Then the king will answer them and say, Truly I say to you, if you did not do it to one of the least of these, then you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Jesus is pointing out the fact that how we treat other believers ultimately is how we treat in our real relationship with the Lord. Another example of this would be found in Paul, of Paul... As a pre-converted man. In Acts chapter 9. He was going out persecuting Christians. Killing them. Bringing them back to be tortured. On the road to Damascus. Jesus knocks Paul off. His donkey. There's light all around him. A blinding light. And the voice from heaven calls out to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now think about it. This man's going out and just persecuting other Christians. He's not thinking along these lines. Lord, who are you? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Says that in Acts chapter 9 verse 5. Paul, or at that time known as Saul, when he persecuted other believers, he was ultimately persecuting whom the believers followed Jesus Christ. What do you think of other believers? Do you love being around them? Do you love being around the body of Christ? Yeah, I know we all come in different shapes and sizes and have different um, personalities. But of the common thread of a love for God and the the spirit of God in us, if that does not give you a love for other believers, then it really speaks to the deadness of your heart and how dead you are to Christ. The real issue here was idolatry. The idolatry ran deep in the Corinthian church. Paul had to address this issue in the previous chapter in chapter 10. He actually, in chapter 10, connects idolatry with their communion. He says, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? And so Paul, with great precision, is getting at the problem. On the surface, it it shows itself how we treat one another. Lack of love, lack of unity, lack of caring for one another. We're just in it for ourselves. But Paul cuts away even deeper. The real issue is idolatry. You want to run your own life? You want to conform to what you think is best? You have no place for the Lord. He is addressing all of this for good issue. And, and I don't have this in my notes, but look at the text. Look in chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. I hear that there are divisions among you, says in verse 18. And I believe it in part. And here's why God allowed this to go on so long. There must be factions in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The real issue at hand and what Paul is getting to and what we need to consider even this morning is this. Paul has addressed their sins, and he's saying, well, "What are you going to do about it?" Those who turn and repent of their evil ways, it will be recognized that they are of the Lord, and the Lord will offer forgiveness as He is a gracious and forgiving God. But those who habitually continue in their sin and continue in their self-idolatry, Paul is saying, "Look it, they're not one of us. They're not saved." Love those people. Proclaim the gospel to them. They're an acquaintance. They're not part of the family. God has allowed these divisions and all these things to go on to point out who is his children. So ultimately Paul looks at the Corinthian communion practice and says both he and God will not commend it it's a sham it's supposed to be the lord's table and the lord's supper but it was anything but that it was all about self that was the problem but what does paul prescribe What is the communion prescription? I want to use the remainder of the time that we have here to really focus on that and draw some conclusions to even point out, even in our own lives. After pointing out their sin, Paul prescribes two remedies to their problem. Both remedies have to do with purity. Here are the remedies. First, one we find in verses 22 through 26. And it's this Have theologically pure motives. Have theologically pure motives. That's the first remedy. Examine your heart. Are you really honoring God here? That's what it means. Have theologically pure motives. Second prescription to be filled. He says, have a pure conscience. Examine yourself. Have a pure conscience. We see that in verses 27 through 32. But before diving into that, I I think we need to prep ourselves and ask a few questions. I say it's about purity. I guess the question that needs to be asked is, why must we be pure? in taking communion and celebrating the Lord's death. First of all, you'll see it's commanded. Purity is commanded. We could see it concretely in the text. Where he says, let a man examine himself and so take of the bread and drink of the cup. Other places in Scripture, four times in the book of Leviticus, and also um, repeated or, or quoted in 1 Peter, is the statement the Lord says, says and commands, Be holy, for I am holy. That applies to everything in our lives. Purity is commanded in Scripture. Secondly, purity is commanded beyond that is. What communion looks to is important. Communion in itself is a covenantal activity. According to what Matthew chapter 26, 28 says. Jesus on the day he instituted communion. He says this is the blood of the new covenant. Communion points to the new covenant Sacrifice of Christ and our participation in the new covenant. Now my point is this. God always demands purity when he makes a covenant with man. In God's covenant with Noah. Noah gets off the ark. You know what the first thing he has to do before he enters in the covenant with God? He makes sacrifice. Sacrifice. He killed some of the clean animals. His sin had to be atoned. The Abrahamic covenant. Sacrifices were a mandatory part of it. And you can see that in Genesis chapter 15. Before God can even enter into a formal covenant with Abraham. There had to be purity and sacrifice. And Consider our scripture reading this morning. The Mosaic Covenant, found in Exodus chapter 19. Did you see how many times the words, Consecrate yourself, don't go near the mountain, this is holy, cleanse yourself. And and all of these formal actions of putting off in cleanliness were ultimately to point to the people's heart. You can come into God's presence, and you're going to treat that as common. No, cleanse yourself. God is going to make a contract with you, a covenant with you. This is God. Be clean. Well, communion is a celebration and a remembrance that we are in covenant with God. If you want to look at it this way, it's kind of like you're renewing your wedding vows. You're already part of the new covenant. And every time you come and take communion, you're renewing that vows. You're promising to be faithful to God. You're you're saying, I will only live for you. You are it to me, Lord. I'm part of of your covenant people. I've been paid for by your blood. And as a result of the sacrifice, sacrifice of Jesus, I will live as a living sacrifice towards Jesus. That's why we must be pure. It's commanded. God is pure. And even what communion points to as a covenant, God always demands purity. Now, they get very practical. Why do people take communion impurely? What's the reason? What goes through our minds? And this is where I really want you to consider your own hearts. I'm, I'm going to give you a few reasons here. The first one is ignorance. Ignorance of the demands of communion. Sometimes we just don't know that in coming together for and celebrating what Jesus has done, that we should be pure. That There is a high standard set. We don't know that, so we just go ahead and we are defiled. We don't know it, but we're unclean. Or there could be, in a general sense, just an ignorance of God's laws in general. We might know, hey, I should be clean, uh, I should be pure in coming to communion, but I don't know the rest of the laws. I don't know how I've broken them. Even though that might be a reason why people my impurely take communion, it's not a proper or valid excuse. You might be driving your car down the road and be ignorant of what the speed limit is. You've missed the sign. Guess what? If you get pulled over for speeding, that won't matter. It is your responsibilities as they are posted for you to identify them and to obey them. As such, God has clearly posted the sign, his law. Your laziness and my laziness to not know and love and cherish and live by this book does not give us license to just say, well, I'm ignorant. I can do things how I want. It's okay for me to habitually be ignorant. No. It's not a valid excuse. Secondly, I think sometimes we could come to this and take communion haphazardly. Communion becomes something that's customary. It's an ordinance. We do it every once in a while. Or in this church, we do it every week and it just becomes common. Like I get up in the morning, I take a shower. That's common. I don't really think about it. It's not really that special to me. It's just something that becomes habitual. And yet that really is not an excuse. Aren't the things that we do habitually, we do them for a reason? Because they're important. Aren't the things that we do a lot should take a greater significance because they are so much a part of our lives. Just because something is common and we do it a lot, it should not devoid itself of the special significance. I mean, husbands, hopefully you see your wife every day. I'm pretty sure she doesn't want you to treat her as common and not special. And yet there is this connection. And speaking of the roles of husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes on and says, look, ultimately this thing is a, it represents something much grander. It represents in marriage Christ in the church. So I have no problem making that analogy. Coming to communion haphazardly is not a valid excuse. Just as it would not be a valid excuse for you to not to love and cherish your wife just because you see her all the time. There's the issue I think that plagues us in hastily taking communion To hastily take it. I mean by that is we don't prepare our hearts. We don't see the seriousness about what we're going to do. We don't take the time beforehand. We just do it on the fly. I think this could be done because sometimes we're just lazy in it. I know I have been. I think sometimes we do it because the preparation is hard. And we might find some stuff about ourselves that we don't want to find out. And we'll have to deal with some things that we probably don't want to deal with because sin is pretty yucky, and it hurts. And there's a lot of pain involved with sin. To hastily take it, it's not an excuse. There's one more reason why people may impurely take communion. I hope this is not you. Just openly sinful rebellion. They know it's wrong. They know they shouldn't take it. But they do it anyways. This may be done really out of pride. They don't want other people around them saying, Man, I'm not taking the cup. I'm not eating the bread. I'm struggling with sin. And this issue of pride of, I don't want other people to know how sinful I am. And I'm struggling and I shouldn't be taking this. But I care so much about what other people think about me. I'm just going to do it anyways, even though I know it's wrong. Really points to the hypocrisy of that person. But I also want to flip that and say, what does it say about the church? That people might even have that mind potentially that we're not a forgiving people. That they might be pressured into taking something that they know is wrong. May we also always be remembered as a church where we're sinners saved by grace and offer forgiveness to the full extent that Christ offers it. So getting back to the text. What does God prescribe? Have theologically pure motives. I'll pick up the pace here. He says in verse 22. I should say verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the... Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after saying this, he, he, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice from the text, communion is a memorial or a remembrance about the life and death of Jesus. The elements symbolize that. But I hope you saw the last verse there too. It's far more than just a remor- memorial or a remembrance. It is also a proclamation. It is a proclamation Of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the heart's desire. The eagerly awaiting. Of his second coming. To set up his kingdom. The point that Paul is saying in this. And here's the real prescription is. When you take communion. Is it really all about Jesus? His glory. His honor. His majesty. His exaltation. His life. His death. His ascension. His resurrection. His glory. His point is clear. Our motive in communion is to glorify Christ Jesus alone. Right? In dealing with the issue of their idolatry, he has to set them right. No, 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 no. You're in idolatry. Let's get you back to Christ. Christ. Worship Him. It's all about Him. In all our idolatry, what are we doing? We're focusing on self, and we've taken our eyes off of Christ. We're like Peter when he got out of the boat, walking on water when he was looking at Christ. As soon as he gets his eyes off, sinks, needs to be rescued. we will take communion and just want to point that out is the whole thing about Christ or are you just doing it to do it second prescription have a pure conscience is basically what paul is saying let read the passage. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself therefore and drink of the bread and uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why some of you are weak, some of you are ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged by the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The command is clear, to have a pure conscience. That is what he means by examine yourself. This is only done when we examine our conscience. What does our conscience say about ourselves? Now, what is the conscience? The conscience is the the immaterial part of you. It is, in a sense, your soul. And so there's, in the sense, the immaterial part of you. What makes you, you? There's many different words used in the Bible to describe that. Your mind, your heart, your conscience, your soul, your spirit. And each one of these words point out to the different little functions that this plays in your life. That's that part of you that is immaterial, that everyone has, that gives you the ability, to sense what is right and what is wrong. Now, how does the conscience function? I think it has three major points. It has three steps. First of all, there's called what I would call the major premise. The major premise is what your conscience regards as the absolute truth or law. This can be done rightly. God has placed his law in the conscience and hearts of men. But it also can be faulty sin can cover that up and our consciences might not act appropriately why? because some people's absolute truth and law is not God's word and so if they're starting from a wrong point they're going to arrive at a wrong conclusion this is why some people can be openly rebellious and openly in sin and say well hey I don't feel guilty about it my conscience is clear I don't Doubt them for a second. Yeah, your conscience is clear. Your conscience is messed up. So there's the major premise. Then there's the minor premise. This is the witness of the conscience. This is what is to be examined. The thought, the action, what you've done. So you have the major premise, the the law. What the conscience or what the soul considers right or wrong, and then what you've done, and then there's the conclusion. The conscience takes both of those, puts them together, blends them up, and comes to a conclusion, a verdict. Here's the law, here's the action, guilty or innocent. It's like a judge. In a courtroom, Richard Sibbs said, the conscience plays every uh, uh, part, every role in a courtroom. The judge, the jury, the, the, you know, um, defendant. I mean, everything. Both lawyers. To accuse, to excuse. And so God is ultimately commanding all of his children to examine their consciences. Having a conscience that's been renewed by the word of God and proclaimed operating properly, and then to examine our lives and come to a conclusion, are we guilty in an area or are we innocent? Do I have a clear conscience or do I have a condemning, guilty conscience that is condemning my actions? God is commanding all of his children to examine their consciousness to see if there is any unrepentant sin. In their lives before taking communion. That is why he says examine yourself. I I shouldn't even have said the word says. It's much stronger than he says it. It's a command. God is commanding you to examine yourself. But I think there is this issue that we go in there. Okay, yeah, I'm examining myself. Yes, yes. Yes. There's a bigger issue. The issue is repentance. Have you repented of sin? For the sake of time, I just want to describe in six points what is repentance. You have to understand what sin is it's the sight of sin, it's to understand what sin is and to understand why it is so bad, the heinousness of sin. After understanding sin, the side of sin, you have a sorrow for sin. You're sorry for what you've done. It is tearing you up on the inside. Third thing, the third key attribute of repentance. You confess it. You open your mouth. You you say, I am wrong. I have sinned against you. Fourth, you're ashamed. You feel dirty. There's a shame for your sin. A shame. Fifth, there's a hatred of sin. You hate that sin. I don't want to do that. I hate it. My Lord died. For that sin. I do not want to disrespect him. I hate it. Six. There's a turning from sin. You understand it. You have sight of it. You're sorrowful. You confess it. You're ashamed. You hate it. And ultimately all those things combine. If they're really true. You turn from it. And you don't sin. In a similar fashion. I think sometimes we come to communion and we just see it as confession of sin. We don't go through all six steps. And yet, biblically, it's not real, true repentance unless all six steps are there. And yet we know this in our mind and we play that game all the time. Right? Some of you have had kids. You catch them doing something wrong. They're like, I'm sorry. You see it on their face. You see it in their eyes. You know everything. No, you're not sorry. You're sorry you got caught. Trying to avoid, avoid a whipping. You'll confess your sin, but you're not sorrowful. You're not ashamed of it. You don't hate it. You're not turning away from it. And as soon as I turn my back, you're going to run right back to it again. Why do we play such childish games with God? We despise it in our own children. Why do we not despise it with ourselves? if a person has sinned against God, we can fully repent. You can fully repent right even where you're sitting. You can go through all six steps. They can be true. They could be genuine. And, and, and it could happen very quickly. And you could thus attain a clear conscience and be cleared for communion. But when it involves two people, I, I want to Suggest to you when your sin involves two people, it becomes far more trickier. If someone has sinned against you, God commands you, when it's another believer, another brother, in Matthew chapter 18, to go to the guilty and confront them on their sin. Now, that's a command. Someone sinned against you, another brother in Christ, you've sinned in there, you know somebody has sinned against you, it's kind of eating you up on the inside. You can't attain a clear conscience and repentance from your seat. You have to go to them. To not do that is to disobey what Matthew 18 commands you. Now, what if you've sinned against somebody? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24... Christ gives the example in his Sermon on the Mount of a person who is offering a sacrifice to God. He remembers that somebody has something against him, he sinned against something, and God says to him, go leave your sacrifice. First be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your sacrifice. My point is this, in taking communion, and after self-examination, you discover that Either someone has sinned against you or you've sinned against somebody else. This is not an issue of repentance that you can probably solve in your seat. Unless that person that's sinned against you or you've sinned against them is sitting right next to you. You have to go and make things right first. Be reconciled to God. Then come back with a pure conscience. Take communion and enjoy. it. Why is this reason for a pure conscience? As we get ready and get close to wrapping it up. Notice in all of these sections that there's this issue of discipline. God says you will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The Greek word literally means you will be liable. God, you have incurred real guilt before God in taking communion in an improper way. You've incurred real guilt. And so, just like a parent to a child, discipline is often a strong motivation for correction. We should take this seriously. Consider what it says in verse 30. That is why some of you are sick. Some of you have died. Death. God doesn't need to take you out with a lightning bolt. He can cause death by many different means. Seems like cancer is an epidemic. I'm not a doctor and I'm barely a theologian. I wonder if it's such an epidemic because sin is so rampant. God is disciplining people. God is killing off people. Now, the good news is, if you're a believer, you're in that sin, God will ultimately say, saying, look it, I'm going to discipline you. And the best point of discipline for you, since you are struggling so bad at this sin, is to kill you and just bring you home. Then you won't even have to struggle with it anymore. Not all death can be tied to a specific sin. But remember, the wages of sin is death. Paul finishes ultimately all this prescription with an action plan, does he not? Here's the big things. Let me give you just some practical things how to work it out. So he says, so then my brothers, when you come together, they eat, wait for one another. <laughs> if anyone is hungry, you're going to want to stuff your face. Saying, just do that at home first. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. That's Paul's heart. I don't want you getting judged. That's my heart. I don't want any of us being judged. Then he gets something that I, I can't really explain to you about the other things. I don't know what the other things are here. He doesn't explain them really well. It could be any number of things. He says, I'll give you further directions when I come see you. And as such as Paul leaves with an action plan, I want to leave you with an action plan. Before you take communion, and hopefully this is something you do on a Saturday night, pray to God and ask him to reveal any sin in your life. Consider the words of David in Psalm 139. When he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See, There be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. David is a man after God's own heart. And he's crying out to God. Lord point out any wickedness in me. How much more do you and I need to pray to God for the same thing? Secondly, for taking communion. I would say even on a Saturday night. Read a lengthy section of scripture. God's word reveals our sin. God's word can point out stuff that we may be blind to. Before taking communion, third point is, inspect your conscience. It's commanded in here. Have you loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Two general guidelines. And fourth, repent of all sin. Anything God brings up through his word, your conscience repent, confess it ask for forgiveness and I would say this set a plan, set goals there's a reason why you sin, you've set many bad habits in our lives, we all have them we've had a lifetime of practicing bad sinful habits those aren't going to be broken without thought without prayer without an action plan. Your sin may be that you're seldom in church on time. Your action plan would be, I'm gonna go to bed earlier on a Saturday night and get up earlier on a Sunday morning. Pretty practical, easy stuff. Let me close by prayer and then give some instruction. Father, examine our hearts before we take communion. You love your church so much that you would give instructions to us. Not so much in the sense that you're demanding even though you do demand much because we were bought with a price, Lord. But more as a father who loves his child, "Lord, you do not desire us to be disciplined, you desire us to walk in holiness and righteousness and to avoid all that hurt and pain and sin and sorrow. Search our hearts, O oh God. Increase our faith, increase our love for Christ, increase our desire to die to self and to live for you. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.